Good morning, everybody. So glad you are here. For those who are guests with us, we are in the book of 1 John uh, chapter 4. It's towards the end of the Bible. Um, there should be a Bible near you, or you can go on an app um, and look there. Uh, we are using the English Standard Version. For those who are used to being here, you might be a little disoriented. Um, we are not in the book of Luke, and we are going in another direction. So uh, those of you who are guests, we spent over 18 months uh, studying the book of Luke, which is a gospel um, and uh, one of the first four books of the New Testament. And so we spent that time and it was such a gift uh, to me, and I, I pray to us all. Uh, we are going to begin today a series uh, entitled Making Disciples. Our aim for uh, 2018 is that we would grow in the very first part of our mission statement of what it means to be and to make disciples. And so we will be in a four-part uh, series on making disciples. Today is the foundation for disciple-making, and then we will deal with the family of disciple-making next week. Then we will also deal with the fuel for disciple-making in the third week, and then the last one we will deal with the focus of disciple-making. And so that means uh, a lot to some of you, and those titles mean very little to others of you. So we uh, just know we are going to be focusing in on this. I'm going to try to set the stage today as we deal with the foundation for disciple making. So what I want to do is I want to begin in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then I'll pray and we will dive right in. 1 John chapter 4. And I will read verses 7 and 8. But we will go all the way kind of through verse 19. Hit or miss. Verses 7 and 8 of 1 John 4. Beloved, it means loved ones. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let me pray. Father, in these minutes that we have together, I ask that you would sweep over me and over us. I pray that the aim of our time would be that we would grow convinced, assured, confident in your love for your people. And Father, I pray that as we see you as the loving Father that you are, I ask that it would make us loving people. Father, please, shock us with your great love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yesterday, uh, we were taking advantage uh, of the sunny day as a family, and we were uh, mulching some yards in the neighborhood. Uh, my boys uh, have started a little side business. Elijah named it about four years ago, Big Bro Moco. So uh, Big Bro Moco is in full effect, and uh, we have been uh, 
mowing yards and mulching yards for a little bit. So yesterday was their first uh, kind of solo mulching gig. So we got all the bags and everything up there, and I disciple. I decided to make this a discipling moment. So we go with all the bags, and I said, okay, guys, I know you hadn't done this before. I had just done our yard a um, couple days earlier, and I said, okay, here's what I think would be helpful. You know, you take the bag and watch how it rips just right open. Okay, that works really well. And then, you know, if you spread it too close to the edge, what happens is it goes all in the grass. And then that's just like you got to pick it out of the grass, you know, because you're trying to do a good job. Some of you don't give a rip, but, you know, you're doing it for somebody else. You better, you know, make sure you're taking uh, ownership of this gig. So you put it kind of in the middle so that you can spread it towards the edges. Okay, okay, good. And then I said, this mulch has a, it's a, it's a stained mulch. It's, it's brown with, you know, a dye to it that lasts 12 months, it says, which means when you spread it, everything it touches turns that color. So I said, it's probably not best to dump it on the concrete, but you should probably, you know, try to keep it off the concrete because it'll stain that as well. Better wear some gloves, you know, just some tips on the front end. And then I said, go at it. And I just stood back and I watched him for a little bit and they asked a couple of questions, and I was like, yeah, that's all right. That's good. That's good. And then I went running. So I took off, and uh, they, because it's in my neighborhood, so I took off running, and then I came back, and when I looked at it, it was beautiful, and they had done a great job. If I would have been there, kind of overlooking, you could have been like, oh, oh that needed to be just a little thinner. You know, don't spread it too thick right there. I could have been like, no, should have dumped it a little bit further up here or a little bit further down here. But I chose it as a disciple-making moment to say, you're going to be okay. Here are a few guardrails, and now let's run. And they did an amazing job and did it really, really, really well, and they were uh, pleased, and so were the people that we did it for. And I began to think through, this is, this is how we kind of walk as the family of God to grow even in our relationship with Jesus. So let's don't split that apart too much. I'm teaching them hard work. I'm teaching them faithfulness to keep their word. I'm teaching them to respect other people's property and treat others as they would treat themselves. These things are guidelines, and it's where you are teaching them biblical principles even in the mulching of a yard. But we also take these principles, and we say this is what it might look like for us to take the principles of God's word and to walk alongside someone and teach them what it looks like to read God's word, what it looks like to pray, what it looks like to fight through suffering, what it looks like to have hope in the midst of despair, what it looks like when something happens at your job and you don't know how to respond, what it looks like when you blow it and you don't know how to say, I'm sorry. All these kind of things, these are things that we can do as we walk in life together to make disciples. And so, I think that it's helpful for us to begin thinking about being and making disciples. For some of us, if you're outside of the church, that might just sound cultish to make disciples. What is that? It just sounds kind of weird. Um, but you've got to understand, Christians build their lives upon the foundation of following Jesus. Disciple is just a word that means to follow someone. So you've got many examples in our world of people who are disciples. They just don't kind of use that language all the time. Some people are disciples of Beyonce. Some people are disciples of LeBron James. Some people are disciples of 
fill in the list, right? Certain individuals that you admire, you follow them. There is no greater allegiance for the Christian than Jesus Christ. And so we are growing and being made as disciples of him. I want us to take a second and I want us to listen to this video of a poet, a man named Propaganda, who also sheds some light on what it looks like uh, to be and make disciples. And this is a conference where I got the clip, so no new initiative for us, no website that you need to check out unless you want to. Discipling and discipleship is important essentially because Jesus told us to. That's, I mean, that's the short answer because he said to do it. Um, but I think the long answer is, the reality is like, how do, you, how do you know what to actually do? Anybody can, if, you, if you're literate, you can open a Bible and read, okay, I'm supposed to be the priest in my home. I'm supposed to be good in, I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, good in business. Okay, I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, but like, okay, on Tuesday at 1130, like, what do I do? You know what I'm saying? Um, but the model for which it seems as though God just understands human beings and the reality is we need to see somebody doing that, you know, and uh, someone to come walk alongside of you and just say, hey, homie, this is how you do it. You know, um, this is how this is how this life is lived out. I think of just the most simple examples of like, you know, I grew up in, in Los Angeles and uh, right around, I was young enough to see like the high school boys starting like, like, the, like the whole skateboarding scene, like, you know, the Dogtown stuff. Like I lived close enough to that, to that area to see this culture being started. At the same time, you know, I grew up with a lot of graffiti artists and b-boys and stuff like that. And how you learned how to ollie was one of the eighth graders, you went outside on the curb and he was like, look, this is how you do it. No, do your feet like that. Like that's how you do it, you know what I mean? And you became, and you were part of the crew because you were part of the crew, you know? Uh, and, and since you were part of us, I'm gonna show you how to do this. You know what I'm saying? With my family, like I didn't have to, I didn't have to try out to be my, my, my parents' child. There was no auditions for that. No, you are already my kid. Now I'm gonna show you what it means to be a part of this family. We wash dishes at this time. We respect our elders. This is where we do this. So that was happening as we were living, you know, and I think it's the same with the body of Christ. Like, no, you're in here because Christ brought you in. Now let me show you how to live it. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that that's ultimately, that's, that's just how God knows. That's how we work. Amen. God does know that's how we work. And I think we need to understand the difference between creating disciples and making disciples the creating of disciples is God's work that's something that God does God changes the heart we are not asked to create disciples we are asked to take those that God is at work in we are asked to proclaim Jesus he will use his gospel to create the faith within the heart and give life we're not asked to manipulate the heart or to create followers we are asked to make them to help shape them, to help guide them, just like he was speaking of, to help you take somebody who doesn't know how to skateboard and you teach them an ollie, in case some of you didn't get all of that, and you teach them how to do that through example, through modeling, through life on life. We are not asked to create disciples, but we are called to make them. We are called to walk alongside people 
and to help them, to guide them, to listen to them, to pray for them, to model for them, to mess up in front of them and then apologize to them, we are asked to be and to make disciples. Now, he said that we need examples. There is no greater example of one who came alongside and chose to love than our great God. And so as we seek to make disciples, we dive into this letter in 1 John chapter 4. And John is writing so that the people of God would know the love of God for them in Jesus Christ. And then that they would stay unswayed by all the attacks, all the false teachers, all the mess going on around them. And then that they would love the people of God and those around them so that they would be convinced of God's love for them. Summary, John is writing his letter so that disciples are being made. He's teaching them about God's love. He's protecting them from all kinds of attack. And he is telling them what it looks like to love for his name. So there's three things as we talk about and think about how do we fulfill our purpose and rise to the task of being and making disciples It is in these three ways. We become convinced that God is love. That God is love. And then, convinced that God is love, we live loved. There's a way loved people live. We live loved. And then, we live the reality of this phrase, loved ones love. Loved people will love. That's what the Bible teaches. God is love, lived love, loved ones love. Let's dive right in, verse 8 and 9. God is love. We are doers by nature. That's what we do. Someone says, you know, you need to grow in Christianity. We first think, what am I to what? To what am I to do? Production is praised, especially in America. Accomplishment gets promotion. That's why it's almost disorienting for the Christian life to be primarily about receiving rather than giving. The Christian life is built upon a disorienting foundation in the culture of America that we do not save ourselves by what we can do. We acknowledge our helplessness, admit our sinfulness, and we receive the free gift of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. It is disorienting because we want to do something to earn it and the gospel is you can do nothing he earned it for you call out to him surrender to him and watch him wreck and change your life in beautiful and wonderful ways so when we hear make disciples or love your neighbor what runs in our mind is okay what can i do how can i do better i'm not doing enough so i better grow up and i want you to hear this Before love is a command for you to do, it's a commitment of God to you. Before it's a command of something you should do, it's a commitment of God to you. Before love is an act by you, it's an act upon you by God himself. 
You will have no idea how to love your neighbor until you are overwhelmed by a God who first acted upon you and for you and at you with his amazing love. And so, that's why John writes, and if you have your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, if you look all the way at the end of the passage of verse... Let me go to verse 19. And this is going to be a little weird. I'm actually going to go from 19 and work backwards to verse 7 to prove this very point. That although when you read 1 John, most people come away with what I need to do better, John has like, woven in through the passage like shoelaces on a shoe or like yeast that spreads through the bread. This one major truth that God is love and that's the only way you will know how to love your neighbor. Look at verse 19. We love because, what does it say? Yeah, he first loved us. Let's just say it again just to get practice talking, just to stay engaged. We love because he first loved us. That's exactly right. And so, now what do we do? We dive backwards to verse 16 and we read, God is love. Do you see that right in the middle of verse 16? God is love. And then you hit the rewind button a little more and you go to verse 11 and you see, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is he trying to convince us? That God loves us, therefore it affects how we live. And if you go back just a little bit more to verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he what? Loved us. And then you go back a little further to verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. Love of God is Him sending His Son. He loved us. And then you go back a little further to verse 8. And He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because what? God is love. And then you go back just a little bit further to verse 7. And he says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Our minds don't know how to process this good news. Because people who have never followed Jesus and people who have followed, followed Jesus have become kind of inoculated with our culture that we are first doers. And John wants us to be convinced that God is the first doer. He's the first actor. We can only love because he first loved us. And so before love is ever a command that we fulfill, it's something that our great commander and lover of our soul and Savior did to us. God is love, and that's where we must begin. And I ask a question, are you convinced of the love of God for you? And I would argue, if we were, our lives would be so different. 
If we were convinced that God loved us, we would never get defensive. Because you're secure in his love. And you know what he says about you. And it's okay for you to be wrong because you know that he is making you new. You don't have to put on the charade of being perfect because he's the only one who was. And you know that he loves you even in your imperfection. That's the gospel. If we were convinced of his love, we would never find ourselves hopeless. Because when God is present and fully loved towards us, there is always hope. If we were convinced of his love, we would never run after other things as supreme. Because you would be so overwhelmed by his consistent, steadfast, never giving up, never diminishing love for you. You would never go after some other person or make your spouse or your kids supreme or make your job or possession supreme. They would never replace God on the throne of your heart. If we were convinced that we are loved, we would stop hiding. Because we would be convinced that walking in the light is the safest place to be. Because God is with us. And I just want to be with Him. If we were convinced of His love, anxiety would be no more. We would hate what He hates and love what He loves. God wants us to be convinced that he loves us. And the beautiful thing is, is once again, in your mind, you just might think, man, I'm a failure. Man, I don't even love him enough. That's the word right there, enough. That's the word. When the internal dialogue says that, you've just shifted into performance rather than receiving. He loves you. He loves you. There's not one thing you can do to earn that love, surrender. By faith alone. God, I've been trusting myself way too long. I want to trust you. Change me. We must be convinced of God's love for us. This is the greatest aim of the Christian. And what is poured into our hearts. What we know is poured into our hearts is the love of God, it says in Romans chapter 5. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. But if what we pour in day after day is we've got to be better, you tell me. If I fill the coffee pot every single morning as I make coffee every single morning and I fill it with Kool-Aid, what is going to come out even though I hit the on button? Hot Kool-Aid. Yes, pretty disturbing. What goes in is what comes out. If I put coffee in the coffee pot, what comes out is going to be coffee. If the love of God is what soaks and saturates the heart, then what will come out? It is that God loves me and I am struck by it and awed by it and I just want you to know His love. It will be brokenness, not self-righteousness. It will be compassion, not hard-heartedness. It will be sorrow over sin rather than revenge. It will be listening 
it will be coming alongside because you know that that's what God has done for you. And so how do we know He loves us? How do we know that He loves us? When suffering clouds our view of Him, when pain perplexes us, when past regrets consume our thoughts, and present sin keeps us keeps on repeating and then we just wallow in self-condemnation how do we know that God loves us look at verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 4 in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him and this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath absorber for our sins. How do you know that He loves you? Whenever you doubt it, whenever the pain seems to surpass your view of Him, go to the cross. For those who have been in the church, that phrase almost can put us to sleep. Yes, I know this. No, you don't. You don't know the depravity of your heart that demanded the death of the perfect Son of God. And you don't know the infinite value of the Son of God and the infinite nature of His love for you. And we have to rehearse it day by day and moment by moment, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We can't get off the cross. No, He loves you. Because he sent his one and only son to take the wrath our sin deserved. That is, he became our propitiation. The song we last sung, in our place, he stood condemned. That means we should have been there. In our place, he stood condemned. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God and he might be declared as just for punishing sin. Both just and the justifier. It is beautiful. And this is how we know that we are loved. So how might we walk forward? How might we receive his love? Well, it is the reflection upon it. It is thinking upon God's love. It is reading in His Word. I was spending time with a person who was going through some significant trial. And I just asked and I said, tell me how God has met you over these past several weeks or months. And I was so helped, so immensely helped. They began to talk about Good Friday and Easter. And as they began to talk about it, tears began to well up. And they made this statement. If I could give away my pain, the pain that I'm going through right now, I would do anything to get rid of it. I'd do anything to get rid of my pain. And then we started singing songs about a Savior 
the Savior who had all the power in the universe to get rid of the pain. And instead, he stepped into it. And he embraced it. John 10 says, voluntarily I lay my life down for the sheep. Any of you who have ever been through pain, you know what it's like at that apex of acuity to say, I want it to go away. And the Son of God says, I'm going to walk into it. And I'm going to embrace it. And you need to see his face and look into his eyes when he says, I'm bracing it for the joy set before me because I love you. I was in equip class. We do this how to be and make disciples kind of training ground. About nine months and we'll be starting another one up come August. But as we are in there, we just take some time to grow in what it means to be a disciple. But then every single week we're, we're constantly pushing in on what does it look like to give this away? What does it look like to walk alongside someone and to share these wonderful truths and to give them away? Well, once, one week I walked in there, and normally we have kind of a, a routine. Some, we pray, someone shares the testimony, we walk through First Timothy, and then we talk about a topic. I could sense that everybody was kind of just knowing what the routine was going to be. So I come in and I spice things up. You know me, wild and crazy. So I'm sitting there, and as I'm sitting there, I throw it out. And I said, okay, this is how it works day after day. You get zero warning, and someone comes up to you and they say, I'm weary. I'm worn out. All I can rehearse is how awful I am and all my past regrets. And I said, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? And we began to walk through, and it was beautiful just to say, okay, we're going to listen. We're going to hear their hurts. But then we get to this spot. And as we say, we're going to have empathy and we're going to walk alongside them. I said, how can you tell them that God loves them? And all of a sudden, verses begin to come. We begin to preach to one another, so to speak. And I just want to give them to you. I just want to give them to you. Do you know that Psalm 139 says this about every single person on the planet? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Hear that, those of you who battle with anorexia or who battle with cutting, who are struggling with the fact that you don't feel worthy or you don't feel valuable or you don't feel beautiful enough. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And then he says to his children in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus by simple faith. And then he goes in John 10, and John 10 says that I am the shepherd, and you are my sheep, and the sheep will hear my voice. You know what that means? It means that he takes care of you, and he talks to you, and you will hear him. Because he loves you. And let's just, speaking of the shepherd theme, let's run to Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd, and therefore in him there is no longing that you will ever face that won't be satisfied by him. And he promises that he will lead you beside still waters. He will quiet your soul. When you are a wreck and upside down emotionally, he will restore you and set you upright. He's a good shepherd. He loves you. Romans 8 if you, wanna, if you don't know anywhere else to go and you don't know that God loves you, go to Romans 8. The great 8, as some call it. In Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the kind of security and this is the kind of robustness that comes when God loves you. It is if he is for you, then no one else can ultimately be against you. They can even kill you, but they will not ultimately win because you are his and he has you in his hands. If God is for you, who can be against you? He also says, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him over for every single one of you, how will he not also in Christ graciously give you everything you need? He loves you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Hebrews 13, 5 says, he will never leave you nor forsake you. How many of our sorrows have come because we have been abandoned? Absentee parent, abusive husband, abusive father, abusive somebody. You've been forsaken and left by many. But God says that will never happen with him. And he promised that even when it feels like he has, the cross says he hasn't. Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We have hanging over our bathroom door as we go into our bathroom this plaque. It's Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14 says, this is Moses standing at the threshold of the Red Sea. And he is terrified. And it says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. You have that view of God right now, even as you're listening, he is fighting for you to understand, to apply, to believe, to embrace. He loves you. 1 John 2, 2. I write these things to you so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, beloved, you are loved because you are a child. These are just a few of them, friends, just a few of them. But here's one that's hanging up in our house, written in chalk on a window, thankful to my wife because she's very artistic. I actually think it's paint, not chalk, because you'd be like, that's not going to work, Cordell. Zephaniah 3.17, this is what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with what? Loud singing. Our God loves you. And I just pray that his word is used to chisel into your heart, to convince you that you are loved. And if you are loved, I encourage you to live loved, to live loved. 
Where do I get this? It's in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. And here's the so that. So that we might live through him. What does it mean to live through him? I don't know if you've ever poured oil into something. But if you ever pour oil into something, if you don't use a funnel, many times it goes everywhere and creates a horrible mess. And so just like when you pour oil maybe into your car or into a lawnmower, you use a funnel and that oil touches every part of that funnel and that funnel narrows it down and makes it laser sharp in its focus, so to speak. It gets it where it needs to go. It shapes it. Similarly, as Christians, there's nothing that we do, now convinced of his love for us, there's nothing that we do that bypasses him. Everything is funneled through him, and as it starts out wide and it comes down narrow, he shapes us and molds us into his image so that we are more and more useful day by day by day. But it begins by saying, God, you love us, and everything about me is yours. It's surrender. It's that we process all of life through him. And John wants us to do this. If you move to verse 16 of 1 John chapter 4, and you look at this, look at what he says in these first few words. Therefore, or so, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. You see what he wants right there? He wants you to know and to believe the love God has for you. So, once again, I'm going to pull you back just a little bit because when I say live loved, you're already probably thinking, okay, he's going to tell me some pointers on how I can love my neighbor better. When you live loved, it is the primary fight of believing and knowing the love of God for you. How does that happen? It happens by abiding in Him. At least, that's what John tells me with the next few lines of of verse 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. When I say lived loved, what does that mean? It means get near to the one who loves you. When you know you are loved, you get closer to that person. God is not an object to be thought about. He is a person to be loved and enjoyed. The greatest task, if you want to be a doer, the greatest aim of the Christian heart is to abide in Christ, to be with Him to pursue Him. I've used this image before, but I wanted to remind us of it from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray has written a book called Abide in Christ, and he speaks of it this way. How ludicrous would it be if we spend hours and hours of our lives climbing up this mountain which has a world-renowned view 
People travel from all over to get to this mountain to see the views. And then you spend hours and hours and hours and you get to the top only to then bury your head, turn around and walk back down. It's sheer foolishness. Abiding is not just coming to the word and reading a few verses. It is sitting on the mountaintop and taking in the view. It is enjoying the one you behold. This is one of the hardest things in reading the scriptures is that this right here is a letter from the living God to us that we might sit with him and enjoy him as a person, believing he is speaking to us and encouraging us. Now, many of you will be like, well, I've only got five minutes. Abide for five. And then I encourage you, if you feel like you've only got five, sit one more minute past. Some of you are like, I've only got ten. Abide for ten. Sit. Be with him. Ask him to teach you. Ask him to remind you of his love for you. Ask him to strengthen you to give that love away. Live loved. Because God is love, live loved. Those who live love, they draw near to the one who loves them. They abide. And finally, loved ones love. Loved ones love. If we don't abide in him, our faith shrinks, our confidence diminishes, our courage lessens, doubt creeps in, prayers stop, we get very self-focused, and we grow cold in our compassion and love for other people. There are massive ramifications for not abiding in Christ, being in his word, whether it be five minutes or 55 minutes. The point is abide. But as you abide, what you will see is the love of God working itself up in the heart. And you will begin to love because loved ones love. Now look at verse Let's hit the rewind button just a little bit and let's go verse 7. Let's go to verse 7. And he says, what's the very first word of verse 7? Beloved or beloved, depending on how you want to say it. Beloved. Loved ones. Loved ones. He is so aware of their status. And then he says, let us love one another. You see that? You're loved, let us love one another. Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, you are loved. Love one another because love is from God. It's like a sandwich. You need to know that you are loved you need to remember that love is going to come from him, and that together creates a loving person. That's how it works. When God is on the scene, love is present. When God is at work in the heart, love is present. Just like you know spring is on the scene when pollen arrives in North Carolina. Lord, help us all. 
But also when there are blooms on the trees, when the leaves start coming out, when the flowers start perking up, there's a sense that spring is here. When God is on the scene, that is seen when his people are loving. So as you love others, as imperfect as we all are, it is testifying to the fact that God's love is at work in the heart. Isn't that what it says? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The person who loves demonstrates that God is at work in the heart. And so, how should we love? John 13, 34 says this, Love one another just as I have loved you. Okay? Just as I have loved you. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to save people from their sins, okay? Let's give him that one, okay? But just as I have loved you, what does it mean? Well, here's a definition from Paul Tripp on what is love and what does it look like to love others. Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Is that not the cross? Is that not Jesus coming to earth? It is. It's willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. What is their good? Their good is that they know and believe the love of God for them. That's their good. That's their good. So, we should love one another. Love one another. That means that loved ones love. Who do they love? Well, they love the church. Love one another means they love the church. What does it look like to love the church? It means that we forgive one another. We listen to one another. We pray for one another. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We serve one another. We comfort one another. We give generously to one another. We teach one another. We equip one another. We do good to one another. We bless one another. You get the point? That's just a few of them. There's 31 of them. I think that was 12. We are said to love one another. And that's what we'll hear about more next week. The family of disciple making. Loving one another. Why is that so important? Because John 13, 35 says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, this love, it requires intentionality. It requires when the service is over to listen to one another. It requires that when we take the Lord's Supper and God burdens your heart for someone, you go to them and you pray over them or for them. It requires that we love. We think about others, considering others more significant than ourselves. And when it says love the church, it means love all the church. And here's what I mean by that. John wrote this letter to Asia Minor. That's Turkey. In Turkey, there were Jews and Gentiles. There were multiple ethnicities expressed in this Asia Minor. The church at Ephesus is one of those churches. 
When it comes to loving, it means that we love people that don't just experience or know our lives or are just easy to get along with. It means that we cross cultural boundaries to love all peoples. It means that we are intentional in that way. It means that when Stefan Clark, 22-year-old, is shot and killed in Sacramento, California, 20 shots and all he had in his hands was a cell phone. And sadly for many of us who are Caucasian in the room, it didn't bother us very much because we've become so used to these things. It means that you should probably text some friends. Our African American brothers and sisters are hurting. I spent time with a friend yesterday and he said he had to take the entire day off because he was so devastated and so hurt over the fact that that would happen. And for some of us, it was just one more news article. When DACA gets pushed through and our Hispanic members, they grieve. They grieve over not being heard or not being understood. It means that we've got to be intentional. We've got to love all the church. That's what John is pushing us to in 1 John. It means that we have what's called emotional intelligence. That even when we're not hurting, we are aware enough of other people's hurts that we check in on them because they matter to us. We listen. We befriend. We come alongside. This is what it means to love one another. But we not only love one another, we love lost people. We love lost people. I had the privilege to spend time with a man whose testimony goes like this this week. He used to be an atheist. Legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he was determined to prove Christianity wrong. He spent two years with all of his legal mind and his journalistic prowess to seek to prove that Christianity was false with a special eye towards proving the resurrection as untrue. And after two years of research, his heart toppled. And he says... Jesus is the Son of God, and the resurrection is a fact, and there is no disputing it. And he became a follower of Jesus. His name is Lee Strobel, and he has written a book called The Case for Christ, a book we have in the book area over there. I encourage many of you who are not followers of Jesus, I encourage you to pick up that book. If you, ha- if you have to choose between picking up the book and picking up that book, I would choose the book. That is the Bible. But if you have trouble with this one, I encourage you to that one. Because it will point you to this one. But what was so shocking, I did a Q&A with, uh, with Lee Strobel and facilitated it with Gateway, um, a pregnancy center that we partner with. And as I led this Q&A, what was so amazingly shocking was his confidence 
that Christ was who he said he was. This confidence. And he says, it's illogical for us if we are in a stream and the stream is flowing really hard this way, it's illogical for us to try to swim upstream. He says, we need to rest in the fact that all the evidence points in this direction and we need to swim with it. And trust that God is who he says he is. And so, what does it mean for us to love lost people? It means that we want them to bring their questions to us. And if we don't have the answers, we'll walk alongside them and try to discover them together. But don't be afraid. Jesus is who he says he is. And so, friends, I want to end with this. As you pursue the church and love them, as you pursue lost people and love them, do it on a foundation that is clearly convinced that God loves you. Because you can only say to a lost person, bring me your questions, when you are fully convinced God wants all your questions. You can only look at a person who doesn't know Jesus and tell them they are valuable to God when you are fully convinced you are valuable to God and those who are made in His image carry that same value. You will only be broken over the sin of others when you are first broken over your own sin and you stand in awe at God's love to wipe away your sin. You can only have compassion upon a sinner and not treat them like an object to be beaten in an argument but a person to be loved when you are convinced you are not an object or a number in the crowd, but you are a person who is loved. And you can only go in confidence that God changes hearts when you are convinced you had no power to change yourself, and God came in, and He changed your life, and He promises to make new creations out of us, and to use us to live sent lives, so that people can be awed by the love of God for them. I pray that you know and believe God's love for you and that we go and make disciples on that foundation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for loving us, and I just ask, O oh God, that you would draw near to us in these moments, that you would overwhelm us by your love, that we would stop trying to swim against you, and that we would swim with you, that we would, in all of our imperfection, we would trust you, and we would love you, and we would walk with you. Father, where we need to repent in this moment, of not surrendering or of hiding or not believing your love for us. Father, lead us to repentance because where turning from sin exists, that's where refreshment from you exists. Father, refresh the souls of your people, I pray. Father, I ask that you would please draw near to us as we take this reflection time of the Lord's Supper together. And that, God, you would remind us that you love us. And we would walk away confident that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.